from Kurtco Media. There are tons of possibilities. Porsche has made me not fear the future. That was the voice of Rob Sass, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with Cars That Matter, another episode, this time with a good friend talking about one of my favorite subjects. Welcome to the program, Rob Sass. Rob, nice to have you here. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me, Robert. We are going to talk about Porsche, all things Porsche. Rob is editor of Panorama, the official magazine of the Porsche Club of America. And that's quite a club. It's got about 130,000 members. Is that right, Rob? Yeah, 130,000 members. It's incredible. It's the largest single mark club on the planet, I believe. Well, it's probably for good reason. And certainly your magazine, Panorama, does an awful lot to promote that. As a magazine guy from many years back, I have to say I love Panorama. It's funny, every time I open an issue of Panorama, I see an old friend. That seems to be a subject of an article. I see cars that are some near and dear and some that are absolutely out of this world. You probably see old friends without even realizing you're seeing old friends. The art director, Richard Barron, was the art director for Road and Track for probably almost 30 years. So you saw his work there too. That's a great way of starting out because the whole magazine was redesigned a few years ago, right as you were coming on as editor. You've been there for a few years, right? Three years. Actually, I can't take credit for the redesign. The previous editor, Pete Stout, did that, and I am extraordinarily happy that he did do that. The new format, the new trim size, really, I think, makes the magazine come alive. We had Pete on our program about a year ago, and we're talking about his publication, Triple Zero, and it's evident that aesthetic principles are high on the list of essentials for Panorama. It is really one of the best designed magazines. I'm not even going to call it a club magazine. It's up there with the swankiest newsstand books that you can find. It's really a beautiful project. You've got to be very proud of yourself. I appreciate that. I'm very proud of the team that puts it together every month. As I mentioned, Richard Barron, Amy Skoogstrom, who is with Automobile and Car and Driver, worked with some of the people who were legends in the industry, Gene Jennings, Eddie Alterman. So these people are all absolute seasoned professionals. Lane has been coordinating production of it since the 70s. So it's a team that I can collaborate with, but I don't in any way have to micromanage. And it's probably 100 plus years of publishing experience on the Panorama staff. Oh, that's every editor's dream. Your agenda is really incredibly broad. You talk about everything from current events to new models, to Porsche history, technical stuff in there for people who want to still change their own oil. You've got a marketplace, really a lot of fun stuff. One of the few reservations that I had about taking the position was it's a single mark publication. And truth be told, I've actually owned other cars that are not Porsches. So the challenge of doing a single mark publication seemed to loom pretty large initially. But you're right, there's such a huge diversity of topics, models, subjects, and everything else to cover that really it's not as daunting a proposition as it seemed early on. Well, you've got a mark that goes back to 1948, and you've got a magazine or a club that goes back to about 1955. That is true. Porsche was barely seven years old and really only about five years old, I think in the U.S. when PCA started. So the passion and the enthusiasm got started pretty quickly. I mean, it's tough to imagine any new brand popping up right now that could develop such a rabid following in really what was a fairly short period of time. Maybe only the Saturn Club would be an example of people that are as rabid about their cars when they were first introduced. And obviously, the Porsche is a whole different thing. These early owners, though, I mean, they were pioneers. They really were. I mean, the dealer network was spotty and kind of far-flung, and the club was there 
to supplement factory support in, I think, a lot of ways in the early days when if you bought a car, you might live 500 miles from the nearest dealer or more or something like that. So having that support system and that camaraderie with other owners must have been enormous in the early days. Obviously, there are something like 14 zones and 145 regions, I think I saw on your website, which is just a huge organizational infrastructure for a quote-unquote car club. I get my regional magazine, the Auspuff Exhaust auf Deutsch. I always look at the member roster and the people that are having their anniversaries. Now, I'm going to be a member for 25 years this year. I thought that was a long time. Man, 25 years as a member? I joined when I bought my first Porsche back in 1994. But I see members that have been in the club for like 45 years. How is this even possible? Most people aren't married for a third that amount of time, and yet they remain loyal members. You have people that bought their first Porsche in their 20s in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, honestly, Robert, I bought my first car as a college student, my first 911. It was a 72 911S. I paid a whopping $6,000 for it. If we could only turn back those hands at time. But who knew? Obviously, you're still deeply immersed in Porsche. In fact, you're deeply ensconced in one now. I have to say, this particular podcast represents a first. You are actually in your <laughs> Porsche Cayenne. It's totally by necessity. It's not like I'm doing this for effect or anything, but as we mentioned off air, I have a six-year-old, I have an eight-year-old. They're not in school right now, so they really don't care that dad's working or dad's doing a podcast. They're going to make noise. So here I am in the heated seat leather line Cayenne. So. Uh, Cayenne's a pretty nice place to be. There's no doubt about that. You've had to have some interesting stories in your editorial role. What are some of the most interesting cars? you've had a chance to talk about in the magazine. Rensport in 2018 was pretty memorable. I had the chance to do a couple of laps of Laguna Seca in 356 number one. That was fairly memorable. Even doing what I do, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. I can't imagine being able to do a lap or two in that again. And the very same day, the Ingrams were kind enough to take me for a couple of more slightly spirited laps in a 67 911R. That's one of the cars that I get geeked about more than just about anything in the port. World. You talk about the Ingrams. Talk about some of the other people you've met. Who were some of the most interesting personalities in this whole world of Porsche? The drivers. Being able to sit down and talk to somebody like Brian Redman, that's pretty remarkable. Being able to meet Sterling Moss and talk to him over the years. I mean, what an incredible gentleman and a life well lived and a long life, but still, what a loss. The first time I met him, I think it was in my 20s. And if you ever saw any of the old Saturday Night Live sketches with Chris Farley, where he's interviewing celebrities. I was totally that guy. It's like, remember when you drove in Le Mans? That was awesome. You know, that was the extent of of my banner with Sterling Moss as a 20-year-old, but it's one of the greatest things about a job like this, just being able to sit down and have a conversation with the CEO of Porsche Cars North America. The list goes on, but it's the club slogan. It's not just about the cars, it's about the people, but that really is no idle slogan. I mean, it really is, you know, what this is all about. As an editor with a magazine that digs deep into to Porsche history and the technology that underpins these great machines. I suspect you probably made some discoveries or had some surprises along the way. The Taycan is, I think, a really good example. I've always been interested in the technology of electric cars, and I don't fear electrification in automobiles anyway, but just how good that car is and how they were able to make it feel like a Porsche in every way, I think was a giant shock, and just how fun it is to drive. We get a lot of 
pushback in the magazine when we do anything on electric cars, because I think that there's a subset of people out there that aren't necessarily looking forward to it. But drive a Taycan and then decide how you feel about electrification and automobiles. In terms of recent surprises, just how good that car is was probably the biggest one that I can think of. But it's not the first time Porsche has surprised its customers and not the first time customers have been surprised. I'm sitting in the car that was the previous shock to Porsche customers. That's exactly it. Yeah, the E1 Cayenne. People were rending their garments and threatening to jump out of 10-story balconies over this car. Again, I think it was a shock to a lot of people that Porsche could make a car that's 5,000 pounds, that has this high of a center of gravity, handle this well and feel like a Porsche. You don't hear that conversation very much anymore when Porsche introduces a new variation of the Cayenne and Cayenne Coupe or Macan GTS or something like that. That dialogue is sort of over, the fact that Porsche is making four-door cars and crossover SUVs. But I mean, that's what Porsche people do. I mean, I, I went back when all of the pushback was going on over the Taycan, I went back and I looked at some old issues of Panorama from 1964, and there were tons of letters. Guys that were absolutely up in arms with a six-cylinder, what do you mean, a 911? The 911, a six-cylinder Porsche, what have you done? This is heresy. You are dead to me. We can have an awful lot of fun with those 911Rs and the first series Porsches and all that, but where do you think they're taking that car in the future. What would you like to see from a 911? How would you like to see it evolve? Having just been fresh from spending a lot of time in just about every flavor of the latest iteration, the, the 992, it's really hard to say, particularly if you drive a new Turbo S, how they are going to make that car appreciably better. Andy Warhol used to joke about people doing the quarter mile in negative seconds. How quick can you get a car? Is that really what it's all about? I'm beginning to wonder because honestly, things have moved really quickly. Maybe it was 10 years ago when breaking the three second zero to 60 barrier was a huge deal. That was something you did in in aviation, not in automotive. Exactly. That's the analogy that I was going for. It's probably felt a lot like the idea of breaking the sound barrier did in 1946. It's out there. Theoretically, it can be done, but is anybody ever going to do it? And now that's really commonplace. I think, obviously, even to the 911 in the sports cars, some form of electrification, I think, is a fait accompli. I mean, that's going to happen at some point. Whether the 718 morphs into something that's fully electric, I don't know whether the 911 gets a hybrid drive of some kind. Those are all things that are fair to guess. I don't know if you saw this, but a while back, we did some playing around with just this sort of speculation. And one of the things that we sort of threw out there was bring back something like the 914, only make it an EV. There are tons of possibilities. Porsche has made me not fear the future. I love the internal combustion engine as much as anyone. And I don't think that we're really anywhere near writing the last chapters of the internal combustion story yet. But I've seen what a fully electric car can can do in the Taycan, and we've all watched what the 919 did in the LMP1 class at Le Mans with a hybrid drivetrain. And of course, the road-going 918 made a bit of a splash when it touched down and shook everything up. Yeah, exactly. So I don't think there's really anything to fear. I mean, that said, we're always going to be able to get our analog car fixed. I don't think that internal combustion cars are going to be legislated out of existence outside of really congested city centers. We're always going to be able, I think, to enjoy. Let me put you on the spot. What's your favorite new Porsche and what's your favorite old Porsche? Not technically new-new, but the GT3 Touring, I adore. You get no argument from me. <laughs> Old Porsche 7327 RS or a 67 
title of an R, probably. Well, those lightweights are amazing. We had a chance to talk to Freeman recently on the show, of course, talking about the original R group, and your publication have done a lot to promote the efficacy and desirability of those cars, whether they're originals or whether they're contemporary hot rods. In fact, in this October issue, there's a great feature on a hot rod, and I look in there and said, oh, wow, that's Peter in L.A. bought that car, an incredible... Yeah, the yellow car that Randy Wells shot. So here you've got an old-style 911 that's equipped with a relatively contemporary engine, and it's kind of the best of both worlds. I am sadly old enough to remember when people were front-dating cars. I hate to admit this, but when I bought this 72 911S, all I wanted to do was make it look like a new 911 Carrera. That's right, put some flares on it. I blacked out the beautiful bright trim around the windows. Thankfully, I never did this, but I was going to buy like the reflector kit for the back and do everything that you could to try and make the car look like a newer car. So really, I think it's really actually kind of amusing that the backdating craze took hold or people are taking impact bumper cars and making them look like long hood cars. Now what goes around comes around, but boy, none of us, I think, had ever any notion that these cars would come around the way they did. Maybe four years ago, these early 911s were absolutely on fire. Couldn't keep them on the shelf. I think things have settled down a little bit. 2014, 2015, they really sort of peaked when a really, really good early S was a $300,000 car. I mean, that seemed a bit excessive when you were looking at cars in the 300 to 350 range, but they've come down a bit. Even two seven RSs have settled down a little bit. Right now, touring is a good one might be, what, six $700,000? Lightweights are, I think, still in the $900,000 range, but I mean, I've seen driver quality Tourings four four fifty even in the threes for cars with with some needs they've come down a decent amount since the absolute peak but no I never would have when I bought that first seventy two S back in the late eighties who would have imagined that the one thing that I always think about when I bought that car I think around nineteen eighty six I guess it was it was a fourteen year old car and it had about ninety thousand miles on it but had some rust starting in the door jams the paint was faded the dash was cracked there were a lot of things going on with that car a few years back I owned a 99996 with about the same number of miles on it. The car had probably 90,000 miles on it. And I realized that in 2017, this 996 was actually older than my 72S was back in the 80s when I owned it. And the paint looked like brand new on this 996. The interior barely had any wear. Everything worked perfectly. It makes you realize that 60 is the new 40. It just made me realize that new cars are really pretty good. And it's not like old Porsches weren't assembled with as much handmade care as they possibly could have been. I mean, the build quality was amazing. The panel gaps were fantastic. The paintwork was good. I think it's just the advances in assembly technology and robotics, metallurgy, paint, and everything else. To this day, I'm impressed by what they did 40-some-odd years ago. You know, I think what makes Porsche so interesting, I know for me as a quote-unquote working stiff who never got a car given to him, a Porsche is an aspirational dream but it's a dream that can actually be realized. Cars like Ferraris and Lamborghinis and McLarens, that's rare air. It's tough to do much more than aspire for a lot of enthusiasts. But a Porsche, especially some of the older ones, those might be within the grasp of an enthusiast. And I think that's the magic of Porsche. The performance, the build quality, the look, the feel, the experience is all there. And yet the cars are almost within reach of a real working stiff. And I think that's what's made them so incredibly popular. With the new car, They certainly have taken their place with the other aspirational brands, but they've got such a back catalog of cars to choose from. 
compared to Ferrari and Lamborghini, which in their best years built a handful of cars, Porsche was building 16, 17, 20, 25,000 cars a year. That's a lot of cars. When you look at like a Ferrari Daytona or something like that, that's considered to be a fairly common Ferrari, and there are 1,500 of those. But I have no idea what the total production number of the 944 was, but it's probably 180, 175,000. It's a lot of cars. There's a lot out there to choose from, but you're right. I've been a confirmed bottom feeder my whole life. But I managed to sneak in just before the Ferrari 308 market went kind of nutty and enjoyed that for four years. And it was a surprisingly good car. That was actually a car that you could own. They're 50% more expensive than they were when I bought mine, but you can still buy a 308 or a Mondial. And they are perfectly nice cars. They are not build quality-wise Porsches. Ferrari was kind of late to galvanize steel, so you do a lot of rust bubble chasing with the 308. But it's a fun car, and it's a car that very much was viewed as a competitor, the 308 and the 328 with the 911 back in the day. So it's kind of neat to have that sort of comparison of spending a lot of time in various 911s and then having this 308 for a while. Really to appreciate a Porsche, you've had to own cars from Italy, from America, maybe even some other German brands to kind of get a sense of where a Porsche really fits in the whole family tree of sports cars. That's true, and I highly recommend that. Obviously, Porsche has been my focus for most of my life and probably will be for the rest of my life. But every now and then, I've had a couple of Lotuses next to the Porsche in my garage right now. You are a glutton for punishment, aren't you? They're amazing cars, though, huh? Honestly, neither of them are really that bad. You know, everybody jokes that it stands for lots of trouble, usually serious. But it's more like lots of trouble, usually a minor irritant. Which models have you had? I had an Elan and an Esprit. Well, they're not much better looking than an Esprit. That was one of Giugiaro's greatest. And it was an early Esprit, so it was like the original Giugiaro vision. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Back to Porsche. So in your garage, you've got a little bit of Italy, but obviously a Porsche or two. Honestly, it all goes back to that first 72 911S. I went to the 24 hours of Vermont. I'd always been a car person, but I'd had a lot of British stuff and a Porsche just really never seemed, at least for a 20-something, like it was in any way going to be reality. But at 18, I went backpacking in Europe, and we went to the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And it was during the glory years of the 962. They had the Rothmans liveried cars that looked so good. Oh, they look good. I'll tell you, it was really easy to see why tobacco advertising in motorsports, why they banned it. Because I didn't smoke, but seeing those cars... Man, you wanted to. <laughs> I wanted to smoke and had French cigarettes not been so horrible. I may well have taken it up. It was totally effective on me. But after after that, I just couldn't get Porsches off my mind. I wanted one in the worst way. I had a 65 Austin Healey 3000. It was a nice car, but I was going to school at the University of Colorado, and it was a pretty daft car to own in Boulder, Colorado. I wound up selling it to an abnormal psych professor. Perfect. Tweed cap, tweed jacket, and everything else. The Kappa Alpha Thetas who lived next door to me were extraordinarily happy to see the car go because I was running like a glass pack and nothing else. <laughs> but I made money on the car and saw a white 911 
with a for sale sign on it in town, and the guy was asking $6,500 for it. I bought it for six, and it was amazing. It was like a complete stripper S. It had no options whatsoever. Boy, that's exactly what you want. No sunroof, no air, no sports seats, just leatherette gas heater and that was really about it. I wonder where that car is today. I've never run across it again and I'm pretty certain that if I ever sat in that car, I would know that car. Well, I'm sure somebody is enjoying it somewhere, unless of course it made its way to the Porsche glue factory in the sky. I hope not because it cost me literally every dime that I made on every summer job that I had to keep the car on the road. That is dedication, but clearly the dedication paid off because you're now as dedicated to the mark as anybody on the planet and really kind of keeping the big flame of the club alive through this magazine. What's the circulation of the magazine, Rob? Does everybody who joins the club get the book? Everybody who joins the club gets the book. The circulation is well over 100,000, but the pass-along rate, which we've never actually calculated, has got to be just tremendous. I've seen them everywhere. They go, everywhere. I've, I've they go to the dealers, they go to all the indie shops, and the number of people that circulate in and out of... Hey, they go to hair salons and doctors and dentist offices, too. I've seen them everywhere. Yeah, who circulate in and out of indie shops and dealers who don't want to look at a two-month-old copy of People magazine pick it up. So I think our advertisers are getting just an absolutely phenomenal deal because I've seen it in some absolutely bizarre places. But, you know, every time I'm at Porsche AG, whether in Zuffenhausen or Leipzig or somewhere, there's a rack of magazines, and I see Panorama there, it blows me away. You actually segued right into one of my next discussion points. What kind of connection do you have with the Porsche factory? Because I know that in some cases, with other marks, clubs don't have a particularly tight connection. Their role and their relationship is probably not as close as yours is with the mothership. We have an extraordinarily good relationship with them. Obviously, we're independent of them, but... But they treat us extraordinarily well just in terms of access. They in no way take the club or the readership for granted. I mean, they treat us in most ways like they treat any other publication, whether it's Car and Driver, Road and Track. We go on the same press trips and we're treated essentially the same way. I've been enormously appreciative over the years in terms of the access and how well they treat the club and how much they value the club and the members. And when you pull Porsche out and single them out and put a spotlight on them, obviously they're enjoying revenues and sales worldwide that other manufacturers would envy, as even some of their compatriots in the VW stable seem to be faced with challenges. Porsche seems to be just absolutely incapable of failing. Their margins are incredible. They know how to work the option list. Who hasn't racked up 20 grand in options without even trying when they're working on the configurator? Deviated stitching takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? I did a story early on. I bought a 924 in Seattle for $2,000 and decided to take it on a 2,000-mile road trip. It was 2,000 miles in a $2,000 Porsche. And one of the things that we did in the lead-up to the story was we just went down the 911 option list to see how many options there were that were more expensive than this entire car. <laughs> and it was a lot of options. But I mean, who doesn't love it? Honestly, in the secondary market, when guys like us are looking for a used 911 or something like that, we get totally geeked about any of the cool options. And of course, now everybody, me as guilty as any, totally geeked out by the whole concept of paint sample and so many of the things that really distinguish one Porsche from the other. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, PTS, what a franchise Porsche has built there. Their entire Instagram feeds that are nothing but PTS cars. And they've got like... Like a half million followers. You've started a site, is that right? That helps people really kind of get in there, drill down and see what these colors look like? Yeah, it's 
rainbow.org. It is over 500 different colors, over 5,000 images that have been largely crowdsourced, submitted by users and fans of the site. And the coverage of the entire Porsche palette from the 356 era to date is remarkable. Uh, there are very few colors that don't have an image. R-E-N-N-B-O-W? R-E-N-N-B-O-W, yeah. There are very, very few colors that don't have an image associated with them, but there's also content. The site also has stories that are both original and curated that deal with Porsche colors. There is also some commentary about the colors. Basically, if you don't know what Amaranth is, the site tells you what the origin of the color name is, and also there's a rating scale. It's purely subjective, and it's meant to be fun, not necessarily based on absolute production numbers, but it's a one to five paint can scale. So one paint can is Guards Red, Grand Prix White, five pink cans is mint green and two three and four in between but it's kind of fun kiss the next two hours of your life goodbye hey when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning and you need to see what apricot really looks like you've got a reference point we just put an apricot car in an instagram feed i had never seen it oh it's a fantastic color isn't it it is i'd never seen it before though and somebody submitted a picture of an apricot beige 964 coupe that was the era of the early 90s when some unusual colors started to break the guards red monopoly Guards Red, Silver, Black, Grand Prix White. In the early 90s, you started to get Speed Yellow, Mint Green, Apricot, Ruby Stone, all those colors that are just legendary today had their roots in the early 90s. That's right. Whenever I see a Maritime Blue car, Riviera Blue, Ruby Stone, Speed Yellow, I'm like, why did nobody order these colors? We'll all pay like a 30% premium now for them or more. But back then, they were bolted to the showroom floor. The dealers never ordered them at all. Porsche was on the leading edge of what I'd call color theory. Well, we have to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second Cats device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com slash a moment of your time. We're back with Rob Sass. Rob, let me ask you, where does your magazine, and I guess the club play, if you can talk about the breakdown, in terms of the old guard versus the new guard? I know that to get 130,000 members, you've obviously had to embrace owners of the Porsche SUVs and certainly the four-doors, and that's a good thing. But do you find that there's some crossover between the old guard and new guard? In other words, are guys that own old 911s buying brand new Porsche Cayennes and McCann's? There is some, and that's a great question, because you touched on probably one of the biggest challenges of doing the magazine, which is keeping it fresh and doing some things that appeal to a younger demographic while not alienating the core of the magazine. And we've had some successes and some struggles. I mean, I've noticed but we, for the last year, we're just about to finish it up, but we ran a graphic novel in the magazine, Spy Collector, which... I've been noticing it. Yeah, which it had not been done. I was encouraged to see that a couple issues ago, Stafferis, the official magazine, ran a French graphic novel, a couple of excerpts from it, but that broke down on demographic lines. I mean, everybody that I talk 
to under 45 got it we had some guest stars in it we had cam ingram in it we had ramsey potts from rm sotheby's in it guys like 45 and younger really got it and enjoyed it and had some fun with it you know it seemed like the movie atomic blonde which started out as a graphic novel people that were a little bit older weren't really all that wild about it and i had a lot of conversations about that and said look here's why we're doing it after we sat down and had a little bit of dialogue about why it was in there they understood and said okay well it's not for me but the rest of the magazine appeals to me and i'll just overlook those four pages is kind of the price of attracting some younger people because the fact is none of us can take this club with us when it's our time so we do have an obligation to do whatever we can to keep it relevant and do what we can to attract younger members one of the tenets of panorama is we really want to try to not keep treading ground that's been tread. We want to try and best we can present things that are fresh and that are original. Well, what's great is that you do get engagement from your audience. And I think the saddest thing is when an editor publishes a magazine and doesn't get any letters to the editor. It's nice to know that people are reading, uh, regardless of how they're responding. Recently, there have been a big change in the back of the book that is with the marketplace. And of course, the Porsche market captures a lot of the enthusiast's attention. And that's been redone. And I've enjoyed the fact that you actually take a deeper dive into it. And that's another area where, quite honestly, we poked the beehive a little bit. And there were some unintended consequences, like any other time you change something. That always happens. But we did a fair amount of research. We talked to a lot of people before we did anything with the market. We're like, what do you use it for? Marketplace and Road and Track went away years ago. Was that just the best experience in your life as a young guy looking at the back of that magazine and drooling over a $12,000 Ferrari 250 short wheelbase? Or a $50,000 250 GTO or something like that. Right, that's right. we're committed to keeping it in print and not shifting it online, but what do you use it for? Most people said, well, if I'm actively in the market for a car, if I'm on sort of a directed purchase mission, the Mart is the first place that I go, and I still look at it in print. And other people, it was almost the 50-50, said, well, I want to get some idea of what my car's worth. I want to see what other people are asking for similar cars. The discussions that we had internally were, well, the Mart's really not ideal for either of those purposes because of the production cycle of the magazine. Those ads are at least two to three weeks old by the time they hit your mailbox. And let's face it, most of the good cars have been sold already. And I can't think of anything more frustrating than opening up a magazine, calling on a car or two or three and having them all be sold. The thing with using asking prices to gauge value for a car is that they're just asking prices. There's some slippage. An asking price is not a transaction price. So our thinking was, well, we could streamline the ads, have them in there, make them link up better to the full ads that actually have pictures in the magazine and use the space that we freed up to give people a really deep dive on the market on values on a sort of per model basis. And that's what we've done. I mean, we've taken just about every data point that we can get our hands on and put it in there simply because different people have different ideas in terms of what's dispositive as far as value. Some people like auction prices. Some people think that they're frothy or inflated. Some people still like to look at what people are asking for cars in the mart. Some people like to see what they do on Bring a Trailer. I personally like private sale transaction numbers. They're really hard to get, but our friends at Haggerty have been kind enough to supply us with private sale data. So we've got just about every kind of data point that you'd want on a per model basis. And all that stuff is going to live on on the web where it'll be updated from time to time. So we think that in terms of the valuation space for Porsches, we kind of have everything. That's really fascinating. And the deep dive is so valuable when a person's looking for a specific car and really wants to understand what the market looks like. The thing is, though, some people emailed us and 
and told us, hey, I really miss the long form descriptions in the ads. I used to read them not so much because I was looking for value or for a car to buy, but I read them for entertainment. And that was the one thing in doing the research, quite honestly, that we hadn't taken into account because it's not anything that anybody really said that, hey, we just like the entertainment factor of it. So we're looking at ways where we might put in some bullet points or some descriptors for the cars that add a little bit of that flavor back into it possibly. But on the whole, I think most people seem to agree that hey, it was a good trade-off, losing some of the long-form description in favor of this deep dive in terms of values. And you can always go online and see a limitless description. I don't think there's a character limit on the description online. And we doubled the number of images that people can post from five to 10. So the Mart lives on bigger and better than ever. I always like to ask my guests, what would you do if you found that proverbial bottle on the beach? and open it up and the genie came out and said, hey man, what are the three cars you'd like? What would you ask for? 904 Career GTS, 911R, and a launch Stratos. Well, now that says a lot about Rob Sass. I'm not sure what exactly that says. No, that says a lot because between the 904 and the Stratos, you've got a couple of great fiberglass bodies there, great mid-engine fiberglass body cars, and the 911R is just, as you say, the holy grail, the nucleus, the progenitor of all things 911. Good choices all. What's in the future for the magazine and for you? We've got a special issue coming up in January. It's going to be the largest issue of Panorama that we've done. I can't tell you exactly what the theme is going to be, but we're really excited about that. A lot of magazines are shrinking. Paper quality, cover stock is going down, and here we are. First magazine of 2021 is going to be the largest one that we've ever done. So we're really excited about that. Well, that's really exciting, Rob, because I think everyone wants to see 20 2020 put behind them. So the idea of getting a fresh issue in January of Panorama that's bigger than ever before in my mailbox, it's going to be fun. Thanks to Rob Sass, Editor-in-Chief and Content Director of Porsche Club of America and Panorama Magazine, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.